I'm Craig Lawless, and this is Sounds Like Infrastructure. Around January 2018, certain parts of the media started reporting on this event that they were calling Day Zero. And it sounded kind of apocalyptic, like the title of an early 2000s end of the world movie. But Day Zero was a real thing. And it was going to be the day that Cape Town, South Africa ran out of water. Like many areas of the world, that region had gone through a fairly significant period of drought. So as that drought progressed and got worse and you know, the, the, the water supplies began to dwindle, they physically had no options, right? That's Peter Bailey, the executive vice president of PLW Water. Which is Ferrovio's water infrastructure construction group in the U.S. And what Peter means when he says Cape Town had no options is that they were relying almost exclusively on one source for their water. And, and from a basic water planning standpoint, that's very, very risky. The drought meant that Cape Town was running low on water. And the bad water planning, basically relying only on one source of water, meant that once that source was gone, all the water would be too. So the authorities in Cape Town rationed people to 50 litres of water a day, something that was felt in the wealthier areas of Cape Town more than the poorer areas. People began showering in plastic basins so that they could catch the water before it went down the drain, and then they'd use this same water to flush their toilets. Some women cut their hair shorter so that they didn't need to use as much water to wash it. And all of these changes in water usage worked. Cape Town had been expected to run out of water by April 2018, but the date was constantly being pushed back. And then, finally, the rain came, and reservoirs began to fill up again. But I think they they proved out a very, very key issue with, with major urban areas. And that is that as, as urban planners and engineers and scientists, we have to be ready to withstand those events. Cape Town wasn't at the time, um, and it, it, it could have been a very difficult situation. Day Zero got so much attention because Cape Town was going to be the first major city in the world to run out of water. But Cape Town isn't the only city with this problem. On this episode of Sounds Like Infrastructure, we look at what they're doing in Texas to diversify their water supply, and we find out how one city on the southern coast of Spain is diversifying their water through desalination. We've got sinking cities and more next. Most cities across the world have ended up where they are because there's some source of reliable water available. For Houston, Texas, that's groundwater. And if it's been a while since you took your last geography class, groundwater is basically water that filters its way through the soil after it rains into a giant underground pocket called an aquifer. And the aquifers in Houston have served the city for over 150 years. But that's starting to change because Houston's population is growing really, really fast. We've gone from essentially a metro area of three and a half million 15 years ago to seven million. And this is an important piece of information because if you're a city that's reliant on groundwater, this growth gives you a little bit of a problem moving forward. Because as urban areas expand, what happens is we, we significantly reduce green space and we add concrete and paving. In other words, we take away permeable surfaces and we add barriers or impermeable surfaces that don't allow that aquifer to recharge. So everything works against you if you're, if you're groundwater reliant. Because of this growth, a lot of the water in the aquifer has been replaced by empty pockets of air. 
which is causing another problem. Some areas of Houston are now sinking into these empty pockets of air. In some areas up to 10 feet. And this problem, which is called subsidence, is definitely an issue for Houston. But Peter told us it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's not time to pack your bags and leave the city because it's sinking. But it's dramatic enough, coupled with the drawdown of that groundwater asset, that something had to be done. In Houston, they realized the aquifers weren't refilling as quick as they used to, and decided they needed a new plan to make sure that the city didn't run out of water in the future. So what the city did was they they aligned interest across the entire region, and they said 20 years ago, look, stop, okay? and issued a moratorium on furthering and expansion of groundwater use and mandated a conversion to surface water. Surface water is any water above ground like a lake or a river. But in Houston, because the land is sandy rather than rocky, this surface water has a lot of sand and dirt in it that needs to be filtered out if you're going to use it. And so Ferrovial, through PLW Water, has been working on a water treatment facility to treat this surface water so that the city can diversify its supply. And they've been able to do this thanks to a bit of forward thinking from almost 50 years ago. If you go just north of Houston, the city, and the city did a pretty good job with water planning. They actually constructed a man-made lake, Lake Houston, because they foresaw that some of these things could potentially happen, and they were prepared for it. Thanks to this forward thinking, the city has been able to build a new treatment plant on Lake Houston itself. Take the water, get rid of all the little pieces of dirt, which are called suspended solids, and distribute it to the region. This second source of water is helping Houston achieve something called water resilience. To me, water resiliency, it's almost, it's a backup generator at the hospital. It's the same thing. For Peter, a city that hasn't planned resiliency into its water plan is a city without that backup generator. And he had a perfect example of another city in Texas that has really embraced water resilience. A city that has this backup generator for when things don't quite go to plan. San Antonio. They now have the Edwards Aquifer, is, is their prolific aquifer that's been there forever. And that's kind of like groundwater in Houston. But now they've developed some brackish water sources south of San Antonio. You know, they've got three or four sources of water, which they can tie into their master plan system across that entire urban area at any point in time. Compare that to Cape Town, which up until recently only had one system to rely on. But since day zero, they've started to diversify their water supply and build up their water resilience. And Cape Town has done what a lot of coastal cities are doing. They're setting up desalination plants by the coast to harvest the seawater. And to get an idea of what this is like, we called up Eva Munoz Manzanera, plant manager at the Aguilas desalination plant on the southeastern coast of Spain. And it's here that Ferrovio subsidiary Calagua is in charge of the day-to-day operation of the plant which is in an area popular with tourists in the summer. But it's not just tourism that the locals rely on. The economy of Aguilas depends on the agriculture, but they have a problem that they are no uh, water for irrigate the, the fields. And it's because of this lack of water that Aguilas turned to desalination. Although a small portion of the water is used as drinking water, nearly 95% is for irrigation. And just to give you an idea of how much water they're treating, Eva told us that the plant has a daily production of 180,000 cubic meters of water per day. You can imagine around 2,000 bottles of water leaving the plant every second. I, I like giving that example to, to imagine the, the quantity of water we produce uh, every day. 
To get this much water through the system, they have an intake tower about a kilometer from the coastline that sits 12 meters below sea level. From that, from that point, the water reaches a pumping station by gravity and then is pumped to the desalination plant. Once it reaches the desalination plant, the water gets filtered to get rid of the suspended solids. Then it's filtered again through a process known as reverse osmosis. Which is a process where we, in, we you essentially take a salty water and drive it through a porous media at a very high pressure. And as you drive through that at a very high pressure, the salts and the other precipitants in the water are removed and you, you're left with fresh water. So how long does this whole filtration process with reverse osmosis take in Aguilas? Uh, maybe about four or five hours, because in, in every stage, the, the speed of the water is different. What's interesting about desalination is that not all the water you pump in from the intake tower is used. For every 100 litres they process, 45 litres become drinking water and 55 litres go back to the sea. But returning these 55 litres to the sea is not just a matter of directing a pipe back towards the coast. This part of the process is really important because the water that they're returning to the sea is a lot saltier than the water they took out in the first place. We have um, a strict control. Um, we control in, in a continuous way all the parameters about the, this flow, for example, conductivity, pH, uh, temperature, to avoid uh, any harm to the environment. In Aguilas itself, the desalination project has been really successful, especially for those farmers who rely on the water for irrigation water that used to come from local wells. And they are very happy with the quality of the water because before the desalination plant they, they irrigated with uh, water from the wheels and the quality was much uh, worse. So um, now they are happy with the, the quality. As Peter mentioned before, water resilience is all about having alternate sources of water available. But a lot of the time, geography is what determines the options that you can use. Aguilas is on the coast, so desalination makes sense for them. Houston has a good source of surface water, so that's a great alternate option for them. But sometimes you need to get a little more creative in where you get your water from. Take, for example, the western US, from Texas to California. In those areas, there's very, very little surface water, almost none, right? The only surface water that, exi that exists is where we've introduced some man-made lakes. So in those areas, again, as a means to manage that critical water supply for the people and the users of the asset, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go to a wastewater plant, which has a very sustainable flow of, of wastewater into the facility. And then we'll actually take the water from the back end of that plant, the treated wastewater, and we will beneficially reuse that water. Wastewater is the water that comes from our homes, restaurants, and even industry. It's basically all of the water we use in our day-to-day. -day. If we head back to San Antonio, we can get an idea of how this treated wastewater can be used. Even though the population has doubled there in the last decade... From a drinking water standpoint, they're using the same amount of water. Literally. So 2x on population, water use is the same. Potable. So, how do they do that? What they've done is they've taken the effluent from their wastewater facilities, 
They've, they've added some enhanced treatment to it, not drinking water treatment, but enhanced treatment. And they, they're irrigating greater San Antonio with that reuse water. Whereas 20 years ago, we would use potable water to water our lawns. And Peter told us that you can even take this a step further and turn that wastewater into actual drinking water. It doesn't just have to be used for watering your lawn. And this is called indirect potable reuse. So essentially, you'll treat that water, put it into a stream, that stream will go to a reservoir. And then from that reservoir, we can connect to a drinking water plant and do essentially what we're doing at Lake Houston for that surface water supply. That right now is very, very common because it's a great way to reuse that effluent to augment the drinking water supply. And if you really want to, you can take it one step further. A good example is what happened during a record drought in West Texas between 2013 and 2014. Which, we, which initiated and spawned a number of emergency type projects. Uh, more than one of the West Texas communities actually had permitted and gone to DPR, which is direct potable reuse, where they literally took the wastewater effluent and piped it to a drinking water plant and treated then to drinking water quality to reuse it. Another important thing to mention when talking about water is how different industries use it. It's not just our day-to-day use at home that all of this water is being used for. If you're doing a chip fab for Samsung or Dell, or you're doing an ExxonMobil refinery, you need significant energy, you need significant water, and both of those things, you cannot have interruptible supplies. So it's got to be there, right? It's a bit like the backup generator at the hospital again. For a city to be able to attract industry, that city needs to be able to guarantee a continuous supply of water. And that's why water resilience and all of these different sources of water are so important. And that's where the cycle comes together. And I think, you know, in Texas anyway, in the, in the southern U.S., we've done a pretty good job with that. And as a result, now, you know, it's a nice place to live. There's other benefits. We've got a lot of talented and educated young folks. Um, but most importantly, it's a very, very reliable infrastructure. Before we finish chatting to Peter, we asked him if he wanted to add anything extra to the conversation. I think as far as, you know, environmental stewardship and, and planning like this, I mean, we've, we continue to get better at it, Right. I mean, we've got to, we all have to learn about it, educate ourselves, and it's in our best interest to get better at these issues because these resources are finite. Sounds Like Infrastructure is a collaboration between Ferrovial and Valletta Media. Our team includes Kevin Garcia-King, Jose Garcia-Guaita, Arantxa Gulias, Bethany Ashcroft, Paloma Gonzalez, and myself, Craig Lawless. And this episode was also edited by myself. If you like the podcast and want more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. You can follow Ferrovial on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and be sure to check out our blog for more stories like this one. I'm Craig Lawless, and this is Sounds Like Infrastructure. Infrastructure.